Saints, today we are coming to the end of our study in the great book of Amos. These two final chapters, chapters 8 and 9 in Amos, hang together as a kind of summary of the book of a whole, uh, of the main themes of the book, as well as being a grand kind of culmination of the greatest theme that is revealed in the book of Amos, which is the awesome theme of the mercy of the holy God who reveals himself here and his awesome and sovereign purpose to redeem everything that has been corrupted by sin and rebellion against him. That's what Amos is aiming us at. Now, if you're, if you're visiting with us here today, we welcome you. And even though you're coming in at the very tail end of a week's long study in the book of Amos, don't worry because everything that God speaks and reveals here in these closing two chapters is the, is the summit of the mountain, so to speak. It's the pinnacle of the revelation that God has been pouring out to us through the prophet Amos. And it is a message that is so packed full of hope and promise that it would have literally been absolutely mind-blowing to any faithful followers of God who were listening to the words of Amos in the 8th century B.C. in Israel when this word of God was being revealed and proclaimed. And as we're going to see here today, there were some of those who were faithful to God during the time that Amos spoke and wrote the words of this prophecy. There were a few who remained believing and faithful and walking by faith in the Lord. But as we've already seen, they were the faithful few because by and large, the nation as a whole wasn't living and walking faithfully to God. They were living, as we've seen all throughout the course of this book, They were living during a time of great prosperity, but only in terms of earthly measures. So they had political success against their enemies. They'd increased their borders. They were enjoying peace. They were economically prosperous. Many people in the society were living large, living very comfortably, but spiritually They were bankrupt as a nation. There were very few faithful ones. And in general, it was immorality, as we've seen, and idolatry and injustice that characterized the nation of Israel as a whole in the days of Amos. And we have drawn many parallels to our current time. Amen? So... God has been diagnosing here all of the various kinds of sinfulness that were polluting the lives of his people, that was polluting the land and the nation. He's been, throughout the chapters, contrasting their sin with his holiness, and he's been responding to their sin in his great justice and telling people that it is because of their ongoing and and persistent and, and unrepentant sin against him that he is going to bring all of their prosperity to an end, which he did about 30 years after Amos wrote. Everything that Amos predicted came absolutely true historically. He brought desolation to the nation. And at the same time, 
that God's been speaking all about his judgment, we have seen hints all throughout this book, and we heard it loud and clear last week in chapter 7, at the same time, this holy God of justice is a patient God of great, unfathomable mercy. He's a God who relents of his judgment whenever people repent of their sins and return to him. And so all of that brings us to these final two chapters where where both of those main themes, justice and mercy, are proclaimed. But the mercy that God speaks of here, especially at the end of chapter 9, which Matt just read for us a minute ago, is an absolutely mind-boggling mercy. It goes way, way beyond anything that sinful people could ever hope for or even ask for or even think to ask for from the God who is holy and righteous and just. So I want you to look with me here today at Amos chapters 8 and 9. We're going to survey them as a unit together today and and behold together the greatness of our God and the unfathomable greatness of His mercy as He reveals himself to us here today. We can divide this closing section of Amos's prophecy in these two chapters. We can divide it into four main sections. First, God exposes the hypocrisy of Israel in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. Then, secondly, he proclaims a famine that they are going to have to endure in verses 11 through 14. And then in the, in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, God declares that the famine is going to result in destruction for Israel. But in verses 11 through 15, again, which Matt read for us a few minutes ago, God speaks of a coming time of, of massive restoration by the mercy of God, and and not just for the earthly nation of Israel, but in a way that's going to affect the entire universe, the entire created order, when God absolutely unleashes His divine mercy in order to bring a redemption, the, the likes of which no one living in Amos' day could have ever possibly even imagined. So that's where we're heading today. So, so I know there's darkness in these, in these verses, but hang on for the glorious light at the end. First, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 8. God summarizes everything that he's already diagnosed and declared about the sinfulness of Israel, which has triggered his righteous judgments against them. And he, and he summarizes it by way of the picture in verse 1 of a, of a basket of summer fruit. And don't be tempted to think that this is a pleasant picture. In verse 2, God tells the prophet what the picture symbolizes, what it signifies. He says, The end has come upon my people Israel, and I will never again pass them by. And we've seen already throughout this book that the end means the end of the earthly nation of Israel. Never again to rise, God has said. Even though, as we'll see again here, God promises to save and to redeem a few who are faithful 
not the whole nation as a unit, but a few faithful people, a remnant of genuine believers that he's going to preserve so that through them eventually the Messiah will be born. And the fullness of God's plans for redemption through the Messiah will be brought to fruition. But here in the 8th century, God is proclaiming the end of the earthly nation of Israel. And he sums up the reason in these verses. And it's all of the sinful, prideful idolatry and immorality and injustice that we've been learning about for weeks now. Here he sums all of that up as as hypocrisy. And he pictures the final stages of, He pictures this hypocrisy that's been festering in the land like this basket of fruit that's ripening, see? And they're in the final stages now of prideful hypocrisy. The basket is ripe and they are ripe for the judgment of God. That's the imagery here. You know what hypocrisy is, right? You know what that word means? So there's a word in the Old Testament. There's a Hebrew word for hypocrisy that gets translated hypocrisy in the Old Testament. And, it, and it, it just has the idea of hiding something behind it. So it, it's the idea like, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day who made everything look good on the outside so that they could hide all of the spiritual sin and rottenness on the inside. You, you remember that Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, remember? So like freshly painted gravestones that, that look clean and pure and white on the outside, but underneath there's, there's rot and there's decay. And he says, that's like you guys. You look good, but, but you're hiding the hypocrisy and the sin and the greed in your hearts. Well, in the New Testament, the word for hypocrisy is actually the Greek word hypocrites. We Literally, we just take our English word straight from the Greek word. And that's a word that came from the dramatic arts. It, it, it was a word that was used for actors, thespians, because in those days, when you, when you had a play and there were many different characters in the play, you could have a single actor play the part of many different characters because... The way they do it would be to wear masks. They'd put masks on their faces and then they'd just change masks throughout the course of the play so that they could play a number of different characters. In our day, we might think about those masks, right? That the, the, the secret agents in Mission Impossible wore, those magical masks that they'd put on and, and then they'd make themselves look like someone that they're not. See, this is, the, this is the meaning behind hypocrisy. You get it? This is what the actors were doing in ancient Greek society. They, they were taking the appearance of different characters by wearing different masks, and they were called hypocrites. And, and Jesus borrows that word to describe people like the Pharisees who are trying to look like something they're really not. They're trying to look very religious, very pious, very holy, but but really they're just masking inner hearts and lives of pride and selfishness and sin of of every kind. And that's exactly what God is describing here in Amos' prophecy. In verse 4 of chapter 8, he talks about people who trample on the needy right after they get out of church. 
He says they bring the poor of the land to an end. So the, the poor people that they should be propping up, they actually contribute to their demise. Even though at the same time in verse 5 they're saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell again and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? Do you see what he's describing? He, he's talking about people who were fastidious about their religious lives on the outside, making sure to go and to observe all of the various festivals and ceremonies that God prescribed for the worship of Israel. Feasts of the new moon to celebrate God's faithfulness in causing the, the crops to grow and harvests to come in. And Sabbaths celebrating the rest that God gives to those who put their trust in Him. But, but while these people were going and, and observing and celebrating all of the religious rites and ceremonies in their hearts, they were still harboring all kinds of sin. So they were, they were leaving church where they worshipped God and sang praises to God only to go out and, and extort people and trample on the needy. So all of their outward religious activity didn't translate into inner hearts of love and holiness and godliness and compassion like the heart of our God on, on the inside in their lives. So all of the religious activity was just a mask, see? An outward facade to hide all the corruption and wickedness in their hearts. Now both the, he mentions the new moon and the Sabbaths here, those were both times in the Old Testament worship system where God required the people to, to stop working, to rest from their labors for, for their own good, first of all, so that, they could, so that they could rest because God created us that way, but also for God's glory so that they would remember to put their trust in Him and not just in their own strength. But see, these people observed very religiously all of these new moon and Sabbath celebrations when, when, when they couldn't work. But while they're there, they couldn't wait to get back to work. They weren't grateful for the rest and the privilege of worship. They were anxious during their times of rest to get back to what really mattered to them, which wasn't worshiping God, but which was making money because they were greedy. You see that in verse 5? When can we be done with this worship so that we can go sell grain and wheat? When can we be done with this thing that we have to do so that we can get out and do what we really want to do? Now, I know that there are echoes of this same kind of hypocrisy in all of our hearts, right? The kind that says, I'll go to church, I'll go to prayer meeting, I'll go to Bible study. I'll check all of the religious requirements for the week. But honestly, I can't wait for it all to be over so I can get back to whatever it is that honestly in the deep places of our hearts matters more to us, is a greater priority for us than the worship of the living God. The, the residues of that same prideful hypocrisy linger in all of our hearts, brothers and sisters. And by His grace, we got to recognize that. We got to admit that. We got to confess that. And by His grace, we got to be killing that sin daily. Well, in Amos's day in Israel, they weren't killing that sin. 
It was ripening. And it had ripened into full-blown rebellion against God so that they weren't just eager to get out of church and get back to their priorities, but when they got back to their priorities, to their jobs, selling grain and wheat, they did it sinfully. They did it wickedly. They did it unjustly. So verse 5 is talking uh, about fiddling with the weights and the measures that were used in the marketplace so that the scales that they measured portions of grain with would be false so that the people who came to buy grain had to pay way more than they should have had to. Way more than what was fair. So that the poor kept getting poorer while the rich kept getting richer. This is what was going on. Because the wealthy were exploiting the poor and extorting money from them to the extent, verse 6 mentions, that, that poor people were forced into such poverty that they were forced into, into indentured servitude. They, became, they had to become slaves just in order to exist. All because of the uncompassionate, greedy, selfish, sinful hypocrisy of the wealthy people who sang praises to God one day only to turn around and live in that sinfulness the next day. So, verses 7 through 10, the holy God who sees it all, who understands it all, who looks deep into the hearts of men and hates the hypocrisy and the greed and the sin, he once again swears to to tear it all down. Because of that festering sin, judgment's going to come, verse 8 says, like an earthquake on them. It's going to be like an eclipse, lights out for them, verse 9 says. All the daylight and sunshine of their prosperity and and luxury and, and complacency is going to be turned into darkness and despair. Verse 10 says laughter is going to be turned into mourning by way of the judgment of the holy God. And by far, this brings us now into the second main section here in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 8. By far, the greatest form of the judgment of God that was going to come upon them wasn't just going to be the loss of their earthly prosperity and their earthly comfort when they got invaded by a a foreign nation and, and their buildings got torn down and their homes got ruined and their economy collapsed, everything got destroyed and they ended up in exile. That was going to be really bad, but it wasn't going to be the worst thing. Even worse, God says, than the loss of their earthly prosperity would be the loss of His holy word. Look at verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine for bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I'm going to stop speaking, God says. Now, maybe these sinful people heard Amos saying that, that the judgment of God was going to come by way of a famine of his word, and maybe the sinful people thought, really, that's it? Well, that's not so bad. We could deal with that. We could deal with less Amos's up here. We could deal with less preaching. Less bad news. I mean, I think that's probably certainly how most people would react, right? Even in our age. Even, sadly, a lot of religious people who 
who call themselves followers of Jesus might feel like, look, if all we're losing is access to our Bibles, then look, as long as I got a roof over my head and food on the table, then, then I'm good. We'll survive. Because in our society, our values like theirs tend to be much more defined by the things of this earth than by the things of God. That's exactly how it was in Amos' day. All the prosperity, the earthly wealth, the comforts, the luxuries that they enjoyed in this world had dulled them to their need for the living word of God. Earthly and fleshly abundance had squelched their sense of spiritual hunger. And so they had literally lost their appetite for God's word. Now, here's another tendency that we need to be on the lookout for in our own hearts and lives. Honestly, has our spiritual hunger become dulled by fleshly and earthly satisfaction? By the degree to which the things of this world, even good things that God blesses us with, but, but they captivate us and they satiate us so much that we don't sense our need of His grace and His Word and His Spirit. Kind of like when, when you say, hey, we're planning this great day. We're going to have grilled tri-tip for dinner with asparagus and some red wine. It's going to be this fantastic meal. Maybe some potatoes on the side grilled with some herbs. It's going to be delicious. And, and before that, we're going to go see a movie together. We're going to go to a matinee, right? And so you go, you go to the matinee and um, you, you eat way too much popcorn and candy at the movie. And then you get home at dinner time and you've got zero appetite for the real food, for the good food. And if you, if you kept living like that, most days, most meals, you would get really, really unhealthy, right? So consider your soul. Did not God say to the people of Israel, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when they first got to the promised land, and they were thinking back of that long journey through the wilderness that they'd had, and they had to eat manna, Remember? wasn't very good. It was the same thing every day, day after day after day. And they complained, right? Man, this manna, we wish we could go back to Egypt, they said, because the food tasted, there was fish there, there were leeks and onions there, there's garlic there. So didn't God say way back in Deuteronomy 8 that the reason why when they were in the wilderness and they were physically hungry, and so he fed them with manna and they complained like they'd rather go back to slavery than be free and be fed by God with this manna. Didn't God say to them that he did it that way in the wilderness in order to humble them, Deuteronomy 8.3, to let your hunger be fed with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then, of course, you know that when Jesus was in the wilderness, without food for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, 
devil tried to tempt him, hey, you're the son of God, why don't you take these rocks of the desert and turn them into loaves of bread? What did Jesus say? He quoted Deuteronomy 8. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I need God's word so much more than I need physical food. Isn't that what God says? Isn't that what's true? That even more important than earthly bread, let alone all of the luxuries that we, that we take for granted every day here in our world, even more important by far is the word of God. Because, of course, far more important than your physical body is your eternal soul. And far more important than your physical appetites is your spiritual hunger. And God himself feeds and nourishes our souls and satisfies our spiritual hunger with the true food that is his living active word. That in our sinfulness and in our selfishness and in our foolishness, we try to satisfy it with earthly stuff, with fleshly stuff. And then, like the popcorn and the can, we end up dulling our sense of hunger and our appetite for Him and for His Word. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3. He describes people who are desperately sick spiritually. They've been eating popcorn and candy every day and never getting to the steak and the meat and the vegetables. They're desperately sick spiritually and he calls them people who set their minds on earthly things and whose God is their belly. You remember that? Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. And he calls us not to be like that as the people of God because our citizenship isn't in this world. We don't depend on earthly stuff. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. And that power, that transforming power that's going to completely transform us, body and soul, one day to be just like Him, is already at work to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds, and it is the power of His Holy Word. Well, in Israel, in Amos' day, they had no appetite for God's Word because they had been gorging themselves with earthly, fleshly indulgences. They had been valuing all of the things of this world and the desires of their flesh more than God and His Word. So their, 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 their sense of spiritual hunger had, had been stifled. And, and that had led to more and more spiritual sickness, which led to more and more sin. And so now God is saying that since they basically ignored him and ignored his word for so long, he's going to let them have it the way they want it. Because he's going to give them a famine of his word. There's not going to be prophets. And, and, and you know that after Malachi wrote in the end of the Old Testament, there was 400 years of silence from God before Jesus was born, before the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God gave them a famine so that then when also all of 
their earthly comforts and provisions dried up because of God's judgment. When the invasion came and they lost everything in this world that they'd been luxuriating in for so long and taking for granted so long, then what did they? Well, they started crying out to God for help. Oh, we're suffering. Help us, God. Give us a word of hope, God. But the word was nowhere to be found. And so, verse 12 describes them. He says, you're going to be wandering all over the place, seeking my word, desperate for my word, spiritually starving, but you're not going to find it. You know what hunger's like? I, I don't... I don't know, I've never experienced hunger in the way people who live during famines do. When they don't literally have physical food to eat, they, they get desperate, right? Desperation gives way to lethargy. They start to get weaker and weaker and weaker. And then that gives way to atrophy, right? They, their bodies start to wither away for lack of food and And that's just a precursor to death. Listen to me. It works the same way spiritually. It works the same way spiritually. A lack of spiritual nourishment leads to a growing sense of desperation, which can cause all kinds of tension, even animosity between people who are starving spiritually, who are dying of spiritual thirst that can then lead to a growing spiritual lethargy and apathy and atrophy. People all around us are wandering all around in this spiritual hunger, famished in their souls, but trying to satisfy their hunger and their thirst with other stuff than with God and His Word. But in reality, they're getting hungrier and hungrier, weaker and weaker, more and more emaciated spiritually, more and more desperate. And then everybody in the world, right? All the psychologists and psychiatrists, everybody in the media, they, well, how do we understand what's going on? Why are there such growing rates of depression and anxiety and desperation and violence and family brokenness and, 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 and societal upheaval? It's all just the various symptoms of spiritual malnourishment and starvation, which are common when people are not being fed with the living bread and water of the Word of God. And and the Word who became flesh, Jesus who is God. They need Him. We need Him. More than we need anything in this world. For the life of our souls, we need Him. And even we who know Him can can very often dull our sense of spiritual hunger when we neglect Him, when we neglect His Word because we're stuffing and satisfying ourselves too much with earthly popcorn and candy, so to speak. And, And even with worldly sinful desires instead of every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So here, Israel, having neglected and rejected the true food and the living waters of God's word for so long, 
in God's greatest expression of justice, he, he's going to leave them without. He's going to give them a famine of the word, and inexorably that's going to lead them towards destruction and death. So that brings us to chapter 9. And we're not going to dwell long here on the first 10 verses of chapter 9, which are the third main section of these closing chapters. Very simply, Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar, and God says, strike the capitals of the temple until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And then he goes on to proclaim the just judgments of God that are going to befall Israel, the temple, the cities, the people, the whole nation. And it's going to be inescapable because when the all-knowing God fixes his eyes on good and evil, like verse 4 says he does there in chapter 9, there's nowhere to hide. He's all-powerful, verse 5 portrays. He's all-sovereign and ever-present in all of his creation, verse 6 portrays. He's all-knowing, verse 7 and 8 portray. So where are you going to go? He's holy, he's just, and he has set his sights against Israel, and he's not going to miss. Now, here is where, in the deepening darkness of these words and prophecies of God's judgment, here is where suddenly there's a glimmer of light. And it comes in the words, in verse 8, the words, accept that. Don't you love it when God says things like that in his word? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God. Except that God made you alive in Christ Jesus. Don't you love it when there's an accept that or a but God? You see those words? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Literally, he's going to wipe it off the face of the planet. That's dark, right? Then the very next words, a glimmer of light, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. And remember, he's, he's promised to save, he's promised to spare a remnant of faithful ones uh, among the people. Then this glimmer be- becomes a gleam in verse 9. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among, among all the nations as one shakes a sieve. That's a, that's a picture of you know what sifting dirt looks like, right? You, you put it in a sieve and you shake it. And that's what God's going to do to Israel so that all the worthless junk falls to the ground and the precious things are preserved. God's going to do that. He's going to shake Israel, but he says, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. He means nothing will be lost that is precious to him. Nothing will be lost that matters to him. Because his shaking and sifting is not just out of mindless rage and anger. It's purposeful. And God's purposes are always accomplished and can never fail. So verse 10, all the sinners of his people will die by the sword because they didn't believe his word when it was prophesied through Amos. But verse 11 Massive hope. Massive hope. This, that glimmer of light, 
that, that started to gleam a little bit in verses 8 and 9 and all the gloomy darkness of divine judgment, turns out, turns out that little glimmer of light is not just a tiny little spot of light out there. What it is is like a, a, a twinkling star in the blackest, darkest sky at night. It looks tiny, right? You go out there and it's pitch black, no moon, no city lights. You see a star, looks tiny. It's a pinpoint of light, but it only looks tiny because it's far away. In reality, when you see a tiny speck of light in the dark night sky, you know, right? You know that in reality what you're seeing here as a tiny glint of light in the dark sky is actually there a massive giant star millions of times bigger than this whole planet that we live on and and burning out there with colossal intensity and radiance and energy, right? That's what it really is. See, that's what's going on here at the end of Amos 9. This little glimmer of light and hope is actually a massive sun radiating with glorious hope. Hope of a coming king. You know where this is going, verse 11. Hope of a coming peace, verse 12. Hope of a coming prosperity in verse 13. But the language that God uses in those verses more and more and more indicates that God's not talking about anything they've ever seen before. He's not just talking about any king. He's not just talking about the same kind of peace or same kind of prosperity that they'd ever known or that anyone has ever known or that anyone's ever dared to imagine or hope for. In verse 11, God declares that the booth of David that has fallen will be raised up. Who's David? Well, of course, we know who David is. He's the man after God's own heart. He's the shepherd boy who God made king. And he's the one to whom God made a promise that there would always be a descendant of David's who would be king over God's people forever. Forever. Eternally. But see, now... God's talking about death and destruction and and them being torn down and never again being raised up. Now, the dynasty of David seems like it might just grind to a halt and and get snuffed out. Because all the kings since David had led the people into sin and and, and, and straight into the, the jaws of judgment. But God says, I'm going to raise it up. That crumbling, fallen booth of David. I'm going to raise it up and repair its breaches. I'm going to raise up its ruins. I'm going to rebuild it as in the days of old. Only in the next verse, we start to get the idea that God's not just talking about restoring the booth of David, the the Davidic dynasty of kingship to the former glory days of David's time. It's actually going to be way better than that. Because verse 12 When this royal restoration takes place, look at this. Then the people of God will possess the remnant of Edom. Well, that's never happened before. David conquered the Edomites, but they didn't possess them. What does that mean? Well, Edom in the Old Testament is is, is synonymous with, with enemy. 
And God is declaring here a situation where the remnant of Edom, the people that used to be their worst enemies, will, will, will become a part of them, will become their possession. And not just Edom, but look at it, all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this, are going to be a part of this great kingdom when this great king comes. All the nations. David was the only king who defeated the Edomites in Israel's history, but there was never a time or another king who, who brought them in, along with people from all the other nations, to make one big global kingdom. That never happened. That's exactly what God is saying is going to happen, and he's going to be the one to do it. Not just back to the good old days of David. See, in this little sliver of land at the bottom of the Fertile Crescent in the hill country of Judah, but something even massively more spectacular that than that in scale. A, a, a king over a kingdom that includes all the nations of the world. Now, you've read the New Testament. You know where this is going. You know who quoted these verses right here in Amos 9? Almost a thousand years after God spoke them through Amos. James did. The apostle James, after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, when in the book of Acts, remember Peter had gone and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles? And so... Gentiles, people from other nations, were starting to believe in Jesus and come into the church, and that got kind of controversial. Should, are, are we supposed to just let these unclean Gentiles in? Don't they need to get circumcised? Don't they need to obey the law of Moses? Don't they need to do a bunch of stuff? So they all got together in Jerusalem, remember, in Acts chapter 15, to talk about whether or not it was okay for all the Gentiles to come in without basically becoming Jews first. And James speaks up in Acts 15 in verse 14 and says, Peter told us how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name, a possession from among the nations. And then James said, and with this, this this God taking Gentiles for his own, the words of the prophets agree, and then he quotes these verses from Amos 9. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. This is in Acts. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. James says, you want to know when that's going to get fulfilled, it's right now. That's why the gospel went to the Gentiles and they're coming in. Because the nation that's God's building is going, to, is going to be a nation of people from every nation on this earth. So James got it. James proclaimed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that what God was talking about in this promise of a coming king to restore the fallen booth of David, bring in to his kingdom people from all the nations. James knew, James knew this is all referring to Jesus. He's the king. He's the king of all kings. He's the one who was descended from David. And, and he came proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's not a kingdom that's of this world. It's made up of people from every tribe, 
and every tongue and every people and every nation in this whole world so that together, no matter what nation we're from, we are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel, like Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6, living together in, in peace with the God to whom we were once at, at enmity. Because Jesus made peace between us and God by the, by the blood of his cross. Because he is the prince of peace. Because Jesus is our peace. So, again, God's in, in Amos 9 here, God's not just talking about any king. And he's not just describing any ordinary kind of peace here. He, he, he's talking about something that the world had never, ever known in Amos' day. A global, cosmic kingdom of peace ruled over by God himself. And man, oh, look at verse 13. <laughs> it just keeps getting... More and more mind-blowing. Look how God describes in verse 13 the kind of unprecedented prosperity that this coming kingdom is going gonna, is gonna to know. <laughs> Behold the day. It's almost funny to picture it. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman's going to overtake the reaper. And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seeds. And the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. He's describing something that's not just unprecedented. It actually transcends the ordinary laws of nature in this world where we currently live. He's describing an abundance that is so prolific that that the fields are going to flourish with grain so quickly after the seeds are sown that the plowmen are actually going to overtake the sowers of the seeds in order to keep, keep harvesting it all. Where, where does that ever happen in this world? doesn't, because here the sower plants the seeds and then waits a long time, months, for the crop to start to grow. And then the shearers come and start shearing. And then the plowmen come and start plowing the field to replant. Here, it can't happen fast enough. The plowmen are actually overtaking the shearers, the reapers. They're like, see you later. Because there's so much abundance and it's coming so quickly. Can you imagine that, that as soon as the seeds hit the ground, the sheaves start growing and, and they come to maturity so fast that, that the plowman's actually overtaken the ones sowing and reaping. And, and, and the same thing with the fruit of the vines, right? No sooner has the sower planted the seeds than people are already gathering. They're just grapes everywhere. They're gathering up all the grapes and treading them into wine. So much rich, sweet wine that the hills are flowing with it. So see, God's not just proclaiming through Amos in this darkest hour of Israel's history, on the brink of judgment and destruction and desolation, he's not just proclaiming this little glimmer of hope that someday God's going to give them another chance and things are going to go back to status quo. No, 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 no. This little glimmer of hope is a, is a, is a sun. It's a raging supernova of hope out there 
radiating a distant but glorious hope that one day God's not just going to end the judgment on Israel. He's going to end all the judgment. God's not just going to bring an end to the desolation that Israel has brought upon itself. He's going he's to end it all. All the hostility in the world between the nations, all the suffering in the world because of sin, all the injustice and wickedness and turmoil in the world. God's going to bring it all to an end, a full and ultimate and final end, because he's going to bring to an end the curse itself. Hallelujah. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) You wondered why Amos was good on Mother's Day. Look at what our God is going to do and how glorious he is. The one true holy God is is the one who made this whole universe, right? And... And his eternal power and invisible attributes and divine nature are clearly seen in everything that he's made. The scriptures tell us his fingerprints are all over it. His character and nature are woven into the fabric of this whole creation. And and just like when you start to pull at a thread on the fabric of a garment, you, you start to unravel that garment and compromise its integrity... That's how the universe works. When sin came in, when man revolted against God and distorted our relationship with our creator, the whole creation became cursed and started unraveling, see? The the earth itself, the heavens above, the whole universe went went into a revolt, kind of like slamming a car into reverse when it's going 100 miles an hour. All of that is what the Bible describes as futility and decay. And it's what we see as as the progressive and ongoing degradation of every aspect of the creation from the physical world itself that keeps on collapsing to life itself, our lives, animal life, all life, vegetable life. It decays, it ends. It's all moving from a state of order to disorder, physicists tell us. But also, also the whole moral and ethical fabric of the universe that God designed according to his own righteousness and holiness. Right? I mean, no joke. It is absolutely coming apart at the seams, right? All of that is what God is saying here, that he is going to redeem and reverse all of it by ending the curse itself and the new testament's going to tell us making all things new a new heavens a new earth where only righteousness dwells where only peace prevails because all the enemies have been put under the feet of 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 Christ the king of all kings So all pain, all sorrow, all suffering, all sickness, death itself will be no more because the curse will be gone and Eden will be ultimately restored and true peace and prosperity and life will prevail in abundance forever. Christians, that is our great hope. Nothing in this world is your great hope. 
nothing in this world that, that you and I get so up in arms about having and not having and, and what if I never have it and what if I lose it? No, none of that's your hope. Just, just return to the book of Ecclesiastes once in a while and remember that everything in this world is vapor. It's the steam that comes off the cup of coffee in the morning. You see it and then it's gone. That's your physical body, that's this building, that's your house, that's your, that's your life insurance, that's your earthly relationships, honestly, that's your job, your career, your reputation, all of that cannot be the source of your everlasting hope and the satisfaction of the eternity that God has set in your heart because all of it's vapor. The hope is this eternal kingdom ruled over by this king and prince of peace and the prosperity of the glory of God forever. This is the great promise that Christ has come to fulfill. This is the eternal inheritance that has been laid up for us through faith in him. This is the great glory that we are being prepared for, which none of the sufferings of this world are even worthy of being compared to which makes all of the sufferings of this world, by comparison, seem like momentary light afflictions, Paul says. And he suffered, but he knew his hope. Christ is that king. Christ is that peace. Christ is that hope and prosperity. This world is not your home. The treasures of this world, even the ones that God blesses you with during your vanishingly brief stay here. They're not the anchors of your soul. They must not be what your contentment is based on and your joy and your peace. The wisdom of this world is not the food that your soul is hungry for. Christ is the true food. Christ is the bread of life that gives life to your soul. Christ is the water of life, and if you drink of him, you'll never thirst again. He brings everlasting refreshment. Christ is the true and ultimate king of the true and ultimate kingdom that can never be shaken and never come to an end. Live for him. He is the way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Always. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of this earth. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, that we behold by faith. For the things that are seen are transient, vapor. They, they come and they go and you can't take them with you. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 So don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal because where your treasure is there your heart will be also, Jesus says in Matthew 6. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts 
to which indeed you were called as one body, and be thankful, and let the word of Christ, which is no longer in famine, but now we have in fullness and abundance, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Colossians 3, 15, and 16. Can you just say amen to all of that? So let's do it, right? Let's let this word of Christ dwell in us richly, and let's sing together to Jesus, and then let's come and feast together on the goodness of his grace at the table. Pray with me as we, as we do that together today. Our God and our Father, we are astounded at the, at, the, at the unfathomable depths to which your word takes us in comprehending the greatness of your glory and your grace and your goodness and your purposes for redemption. Father, we recognize as somebody had said that your word is like a, a pool that a toddler can wade in safely and yet, and yet an ocean that an elephant could drown in. It's so deep, Father. And we praise you for its depth today and ask that you would cause the overflow of your wisdom and truth and glory and grace to awaken gratitude and love in our hearts that would set us to seeking first your kingdom and righteousness with our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, that we might keep running with endurance and unencumbered by sin as we wait for him to return. So, Father, grow your church and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.